0: Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We have on the back table Bibles in case you need one. But Matthew chapter 18, we've been studying through the Gospels for quite a while now. And last week we were in Luke chapter 9 and we studied verses 28 through 45. And we looked at two instances last week. The first one was Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. And if you remember, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, went up to the mountain, and he was transfigured. And it was here in this this instance that Jesus proved himself to be God and proved himself to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So it was an amazing, amazing moment. The second thing we looked at last week was Jesus coming down off the mountain and there meeting a man who had a demon-possessed son. And Jesus cast a demon out of this boy and healed him of his injuries. And Jesus, at this time, then proceeded to rebuke the multitudes. He rebuked them for their ulterior motives they were coming to him with. He was rebuking them for their lack of trust. And then he was rebuking the disciples for their lack of faith. And the question we asked last week was, are you focused on Christ's glory? Are you fixed on the beauty and the glory of who God is, trusting him for who he is? Or is your focus on something else? And I'd like to follow up on that this week. What was the focus of your week? What were you focusing on this week? Maybe this day, what were you focusing on? Has it been Jesus or has it been something or someone else? So today we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 18 and we're going to see what happens next in Jesus' ministry. So if you're following along Matthew chapter 18, we're just going to start in verse one today. Look what it says there. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Matthew, the author, he starts this chapter off by saying, at that time. What time? Well, this is shortly after the events of what we looked at last week. Not much time has passed at all since Jesus was transfigured and the time that the disciples are having this dispute. Now, my next question is, where are Jesus and the disciples at this time? We're not told here in Matthew. Are they in the same location as Jesus was on the mountain? Or have, have they moved? Where are they at? Well, Mark's Gospel in Mark 9.33 gives us a little more details. And Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples were in Capernaum. So Capernaum was on the northwestern sea of the, of, of the Sea of Galilee, the northwestern shore, I should say. And Capernaum's a familiar place. This is where Peter was from, right? According to Matthew 8, this is where Peter's home was. And it was here in Capernaum that Jesus, he healed the paralytic man. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He cast demons out of people in Capernaum. He healed the woman with the flow of blood. And so Jesus, he was here quite often. And it was here also that he even taught in some of the Jewish synagogues. So the disciples are here and they begin to dispute with themselves or to debate. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they bring this question to Jesus. Now, like normal, the disciples were missing the point, weren't they? The disciples were missing the point in ministry and in their life of serving Jesus, and they thought that they were competing with one another, and they were trying to outdo each other in order to be greater in the kingdom of heaven. They were falling into a trap here that I think many people fall into today in ministry, thinking that we're at competition with one another in serving God and furthering His kingdom. Now, we know in the eyes of God, there's no partiality. God doesn't look at a certain person and say, you're greater than that person. We know that. So where did this desire to compete with one another come from in the disciples heart? It didn't come from God. It came from pride. Pride was once more blinding the disciples heart and taking their focus off what they should have been focused on. And as we shared a couple weeks ago, pride will destroy the ministry that God has called us to. Pride will destroy the relationships he's called us to. And we cannot be effective in serving in ministry with pride in our hearts. The disciples were about to learn a lesson as we're going to look at through the rest of this chapter that ministry in life was not about them. And the same is true for us today. Ministry in life, it's not about us. It's not about what we have to offer, what we can do. It's about putting Jesus first and putting others first as well. And while the world teaches something completely opposite of this, the world teaches you to put self Above everything else, the Bible says crucify self. So you see the difference. Greatness is not defined by our position or accomplishments. It's defined in who the God is that we serve. And the disciples were going to learn this lesson. So let's see how Jesus responds to this in verses 2 through 5. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, notice Jesus doesn't directly answer the disciples here. Instead, he just calls a child over and he tells them that they need to become like children. Now, what's astounding to me is Jesus doesn't just say you need to become like a child. What does he say? He said, in. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be like a little child. It's pretty astounding that Jesus would say that. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like one of these. So what is it exactly that Jesus is saying here? Why is Jesus telling us and the disciples that we must be like a little child in order to enter heaven? Well, it's very obvious here that Jesus was commanding us that we must humble ourselves if we are to enter heaven. If we are to truly enter heaven and truly come and ask the Lord for his mercy and grace, we need to come to that point of humbling ourselves before God and crying out to him and surrendering to him. Now, you have to understand also the context. In the ancient world, children were considered to have no rights, to have no freedoms or no entitlements. Children were viewed to be very dependent, right? They didn't have a say in the matter. They were obedient and they had no rights and no say. They were humble. They had to be. And in the same sense, Jesus is telling his disciples, this, this competing that you have with one another, it comes from a heart of pride. If you're truly to be my servants and follow me, you need to humble yourself. You need to surrender your rights. You need to surrender your freedoms, your desires, your entitlements. What Jesus is seeking after is a heart that's completely surrendered to him. A heart that is humble before God, a heart that acknowledges our desperate need for him. So with that said, are you living a life of humility or are you living a life of pride? And we've asked this question a few weeks ago, but I think it's a pretty prevalent question to ask quite often. I know I have to ask myself this question often. Am I living a life of pride or humility? Remember, pride's a very dangerous poison that will destroy you. Are you dependent on the Lord? Or are you trying to live and serve every possible way on your terms? Trying to do what you want to do instead of what God is calling you to do. Trying to take the calling that God has placed on your life and trying to fulfill it your own way instead of being dependent on Him. We have to surrender. Surrender means that you'll go and do whatever it is Jesus requests of you and you'll be willing to give up any and everything that Jesus requires of you. Now, Jesus says in verse 5 that we are to receive one of these little children in his name. Now, a lot of people debate on whether Jesus was talking about physical children or if he was talking about other Christians and describing Christians the way that he's describing a child. Quite honestly, I think we can get application from both of these. I don't think it's wrong to say we we shouldn't receive little children and treat them with the love of Jesus. But I do believe Jesus is referring to his disciples as this is how we need to treat one another as Christians. And the word receive here is a Greek word called dekomai, and it means to take someone and gently lead them by the hand and serve them. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. You need to serve one another. And look what Jesus said. When you receive one of these, you receive me. Jesus is saying, when you're serving one another, you're ultimately serving me. With this said, are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because the church has kind of... Drop the ball on this, haven't we? We're so competitive in nature and we're so d- divided as a church instead of serving one another and coming alongside each other as one body in Christ. You know, one of the biggest things that I hear from people who aren't Christians, they always ask this question Can you explain the church to me? Because I don't understand it. Why are so many people divided in the church? Is there more than one church? No, there's one church in Jesus Christ. But we have. We have become this competitive church where we try to compete and outdo one another, and it's caused division when Jesus said you need to serve one another. Paul wrote in Galatians six, two, he said, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Satan wants nothing more than strife and division within the church. He wants nothing more than for us to put ourselves above other people and not to serve one another. But Jesus commands us to live, serve, and dwell in worship and worship in unity. Let's look at verses six through seven. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Wow. Jesus is not playing here, is he? He's using very strong language and laying out very strict and strong warnings in these verses. I think reading this, I think it's safe to say that Jesus takes His church very seriously. I think it's safe to say that Jesus takes His children very seriously. And I also think it's safe to say that when something is being taught that's false, and when someone is leading another Christian to sin, Jesus takes it very seriously. And if Jesus takes His church this seriously, should we not take it this seriously as well? Now, what does it mean to call someone to stumble? Because Jesus lays a strict warning for whoever causes another person to stumble. To cause one to stumble, it means to cause one to sin. It means you entice someone to sin and to walk away from their commitment and their relationship with Christ. And this is very prevalent today. And it's especially prevalent through false teaching. When people uh, teach a false Jesus and a false gospel, and they take hearts that are desperately hungering for Jesus, and they lead them to a different gospel. Leading them to a life of sin. God takes this very seriously. And Jesus has a strict judgment for such people. Because in causing one to sin, you're keeping them from their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I think as we read this, I think it's important we ask ourselves this question Am I causing someone to sin? Or am I leading others to sin? Am I causing one of my brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble? And you might think immediately, of course not. No, I don't cause anyone to stumble. But understand, sin's very deceptive, and sin easily creeps into the church. Gossip, slander, anger, unforgiveness, pride, selfishness, lust, envy, greed. These things can easily slip into the church. These things can easily slip into our hearts. And these things can very well cause others to stumble. If someone looked at your life, would they see Jesus or would they see sin? We're all ambassadors. We're all representing Jesus. We're all a living example for someone. Someone is watching the way you live your life. What kind of an example are you setting? And when people look at the way you live, are they being pointed to Jesus or are they being pointed to sin? It's something to think about. But let's look at verses eight through nine, because I think these are very important verses here. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, this is once again a very interesting thing that Jesus says. And this is actually not the first time Jesus has said this. If you remember back to Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the same thing. When he was addressing sinning in your heart, Jesus, he said the same thing. So what does Jesus mean and why would he repeat this? And why would he repeat this here? Now, we know that Jesus is not telling us to literally cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes. If so, all of us in here are guilty for not doing that. Right? But Jesus is not literally telling us to do these things. The heart of the matter is Jesus is telling us that we must keep ourselves from the sin that so easily ensnares us. And I believe Jesus, He repeats these verses that He once already taught. I believe He repeats it here because He wants His disciples to know that if you don't deal with the sin that causes you to stumble, you will stumble someone else. If the sin in your life is not dealt with, that sin will continue to grow and grow and it will affect others. And the sin that makes you stumble surely will cause others to stumble as well. For example, if I were walking through a dark room and I tripped over an object in the middle of the room, well, I stumbled, quite literally. If I didn't move that object and I knew you were coming in, guess what? You're going to stumble over it too. I have to deal with the situation. I have to move it because if I don't move it, you're going to stumble as well. At the root of causing other people to stumble is the fact that you yourself are stumbling. And Jesus is commanding us here to combat against sin each day. He's telling us, stay away from the things that so easily ensnare you and the things that so easily capture your heart. These things, these sins that are so enticing to your flesh. You need to give them up. You need to resist them here. And so many Christians are so ignorant of the battle that we're in and the adversary that we face. And I'm not telling you to go study Satan, but I am telling you to understand how he attacks. Satan will attack you where you're weak. The sin that you struggle with, Satan will attack you there. Because Satan's objective is laid out for us in John 10.10. Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is Satan's objective. This is his goal. He knows where you're weak. He knows how he's going to attack you. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to keep yourself from sin. You need to keep yourself from the sin that so easily ensnares you. Rid yourselves of the triggers that cause you to be tempted. Memorize scripture. Learn how to combat against these temptations. But here's the thing with sin. In order to truly be free from sin, you need to surrender sin. You need to surrender it. There's so many Christians living in bondage and living lives of, of addiction. And I believe they're saved. I know they love Jesus. So many Christians, they say, how can I get free? How can I be free from my sin? You are free. Christ has set you free. He already said that. He said, if, if he set you free, you're free indeed. I think the issue is many Christians, they're trying to surrender like this. They don't want to let go of the sin. Because deep down, our flesh loves it. Our flesh longs for it. Our flesh wants to sin. I also believe this is one of the biggest reasons many people are hesitant to give their lives to Jesus. Because they know if they give their life to Jesus, they're going to have to change the way they live. And our flesh doesn't want to change. Our flesh likes to do what it does. It's a powerful thing. But Jesus is saying, you must sacrifice in order to be free. You have to surrender. So what is it in your life that has been causing you to stumble lately? Maybe this week, Maybe there's a sin in your life that you just can't seem to, to shake, a sin that keeps keeps keeping you in bondage, a sin that you keep compromising and you keep committing and that you just can't get free from. What is it that is causing you to stumble? You need to surrender it. Jesus has set you free, but you need to surrender that sin to him. But if we don't deal with the sin in our hearts and our lives, it will spread to others. And you might think, well, how does that work? Well, take David. David's a great example. Right? David, he saw Bathsheba and he had some lust in his heart for her. Now, lust is one of those secret sins, right? One of those sins that doesn't affect people, just yourself. And and David looks at her and he has this this lust in his heart. Well, guess what happens? Because he didn't deal with that lust. He turned, it turned into the physical act of adultery. Still didn't deal with the act of sin. What happened next? He lied. Still didn't deal with it. What happened? He committed murder. Murdered Bathsheba's husband. So you see how one little sin, it turned into something far worse. One little compromise turned into more compromise. And it no longer just affected David, it affected those around him. And Jesus is saying the same thing. The beginning of causing other people to stumble is the fact that you're stumbling yourself. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus starts off and he says, Make sure that you don't despise One of these little ones, make sure that you don't despise one another. Remember, the disciples are getting this teaching from Jesus because they asked him, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're trying to outdo one another and compete. And Jesus said, do not despise one another. The word despise here, it means to have contempt, disdain or to think less of. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not supposed to think less of yourselves, of each other. You are to put others first. You are to serve one another and to be servants to each other. And Jesus, he starts to share his heart with the disciples. And he shares this this parable, the parable of the lost sheep. But in verse 11, we really see the heart of Jesus. Jesus said, I've come to save that which was lost. And I believe Jesus was reminding his disciples, that was you once. And I've saved you. Look what I've done for you. While you were my enemy, look what I've done for you. And I wonder as we read this, do we see the world as Jesus sees it? Jesus was correcting his disciples. He said, you're not seeing each other as you are called to see each other. You need to see one another as I see you, in love. Do we see the world in this way? Do we treat people like Jesus does? Do we love people like Jesus loves? And I get it. Many times people will say, well, I can't love like that. Well, that's partially true. We can't in our own strength. But with the Holy Spirit, yes, we can. Because the Spirit of God lives in our hearts. And while this is amazing, it also removes the excuses from us, doesn't it? Now we have no excuses. The Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, and now we can do what God has called us to do. So are we loving those around us? Are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because if we can't love each other as Christians, how are we going to love people who aren't Christians? If we can't love our family in Christ, how can we love those who revile us and persecute us and hate us? It starts with each other in the church. We have to love each other. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're not competing with each other. Don't put one another down. You're to love each other as I've loved you. And Jesus reveals his heart to come and to save those who are lost. The word lost here, it means to face death or destruction. To be lost in this Greek word, it means that you are on a path that is surely going to lead to death and destruction. And I believe Jesus was reminding his disciples, you're on that path. And for each one of us in here as Christians, we once were on that path that was leading to death and destruction and Jesus saved us from it. We were that one that went astray and Jesus left the 99 for each one of us. That was us at one point. And Jesus saved us and redeemed us. We should be overflowing with joy when we read this. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Have you lost the joy of the fact that Jesus has rescued you from your sins and has taken you off this path that leads to death and destruction? Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. This is what God has done for us. He has saved us from the kingdom of darkness. We should be overjoyed as we read this. But also as we read this and reflect on what Christ has done for us, our hearts should also break. Why? Our heart should break for the lost. Our heart should look like Jesus, because a heart that's truly surrendered to Jesus is a heart that's going to look like His heart. And if Jesus said that He came to save those that are lost, those who are doomed to death and destruction, that should be our heart. Our heart should break for the lost. Does your heart break for the lost? When you hear and read about hell in this place of eternal suffering and torment for all of eternity, how do you respond to this? Is your heart moved with compassion for those who don't know Jesus? Are you out sharing the gospel? We went over this Friday in the youth group, and I really never thought about this, but Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel. So if we don't preach the gospel, we're not doing what Jesus has commanded us to do. If we're not doing what he's commanded us to do, we're sinning against him. Yet not many Christians consider not preaching the gospel a sin. It's a sin to not share about the joy that's within us. It is a sin not to warn people of this hell and destruction that they are doomed to be in. Our salvation is never meant to be kept to ourselves. We're to go out and share it. Because there's people who are on this path that leads to destruction. And if Jesus' heart is to go, leave the 99 to find the one, which was you and I at one point, that should be our heart, to point people to Jesus. So he shares this story. Notice, Jesus shares in this story, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he's full of joy. He rejoices over it. And it really shows us just once again, the heart of Jesus, that His heart is a heart of restoration. How Jesus rejoices when we come back to Him. And maybe you're in here as a Christian, but you've been straying this week, straying from Jesus, straying from His Word, from His commands. Your heart has been hardened. Jesus isn't angry. He wants to restore you. Look at the shepherd's reaction when the sheep is found. He has joy in his heart. We serve a God of restoration. A God who is willing to forgive us if we ask Him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're on that path that leads to death and destruction. But I have great news for you. There's a way off of it. Jesus, He paid the price. It's not about the work that we do. It's the work that He's already done. And so Jesus is, once again, correcting His disciples. You're not to put each other down. You're to serve each other, love each other as I have loved you. And if you don't love each other, how are you going to love those in the world who don't know Christ? It's like at verses 15 through 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So now Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples. This is how you're to treat one another and how you're to love each other. This is what a surrendered heart looks like, right? You need to humble yourself. You need to serve each other. You need to love each other. And now Jesus is telling his disciples how to deal with the situation if they're wronged. By someone else in the church. See, Satan wants nothing more than division in the church. He he can't defeat the church. Satan can't destroy the church. And this is why if you look in even the most persecuted nations, guess what? The church of Jesus still thrives. Why? Because Satan can't destroy it. So how does Satan attack it? He tries to sow division and lies within the body. That's how he attacks it. And he wants division. And so Jesus is laying out for us how to deal with situations in the church without causing division. And so Jesus tells us how to deal with one who has sinned against us or wronged us in the church. What does Jesus say to do? He says, go to that person directly alone. It's pretty simple. However, this is a model that unfortunately is not cautiously followed many times today. Because many times when someone is wronged in the church, the person who is wronged goes to everyone else in the church instead of the person who actually wronged them, which causes division. (laughs) This is wrong because in doing it, you're causing gossip and slander in the church. And these are sins that the church just kind of downplays and doesn't understand. They are detrimental sin to the body of Christ, and God hates these sins. Gossip is when you share to other people about a certain person, causing people to think less of them. And slander is the act of sharing things, typically false, about a person to tear down their reputation and character. Again, as the church, we're to build each other up, not tear each other down. And yet it's very prevalent in the church today. You know, it's not so much as, you know, going up to someone and saying, oh, this is what so-and-so did. No, we like to put our Christian terms on it. Oh, you got to pray for so-and-so. Oh. They're walking through it right now. Oh, you'll never believe what they did. Or please pray for me because so-and-so said this to me and I just, yeah, right? It's gossip. You put your Christian terms on it all you want. Jesus lays out how we're to deal with these situations. We need to go directly to this person alone. And Jesus lays out that if you go to this person and they don't repent, they don't hear what you have to say, Jesus said, take one or two more. Have witnesses behind it. If they still don't hear, involve the church leadership, right? If they don't hear them, it's brought before the church. And if they don't hear the church, they would be removed from fellowship. Now, people may think, does Jesus really want people removed from his church? Well, Jesus, his heart is for restoration. However, Jesus wants his church to be a healthy church. And if there is unrepented sin and it's causing others to stumble in the church, they need to be removed for the sake of the rest of the church. Now, I want you to notice, though, Jesus is not suggesting we kick them out of the church and then reject them and forsake them. No, the heart of Jesus is to still minister to them. And this was modeled by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. When he was writing to the church at Corinth, he had to address a situation with sexual sin in the church. And he said, listen, this sin has not been dealt with. This sin is carrying on. You're not saying anything. He needs to be removed from fellowship. But they continue to minister to him. And in 2 Corinthians, the church actually wouldn't let him back in. And Paul had to write to him. Let him back in. (laughs) He's repented. Right? So the heart of Jesus is not to forsake these people, but the heart of Jesus is to keep his church healthy. And so that's why these situations, they need to be dealt with. If you have something in here today against your brother and sister in Christ, you need to deal with it. You need to go to them. You need to address it with them. Don't let this sit and fester. Just like any sin, if you let sin sit in your heart, it will grow and become something that is a lot worse. Again, look at David, a small thought of lust turned into murder, all right? That's what sin does. We don't want to contribute division to the church. So many Christians today though, they seek to divide instead of reconcile. You know what's astounding? The number one reason missionaries leave the mission field? It's not persecution, it's not hardships, it's not sickness. It's other missionaries. That's sad. Why? Because this failure to reconcile, this idea that we're against each other when really we're one family in Christ. Now, Jesus said in verse 18 that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I believe Jesus is affirming that what the church does in accordance to God's will is recognized by the church. If the church has to remove someone, right? God recognizes that. This idea of binding, it means to exact judgment. That's what the word binding means. And so I believe Jesus is saying that when you do these things in accordance to the will of God, right, God recognizes it. Because even though God's heart is for restoration, it's hard as to have his church healthy and to have his church safe and to have his church from more people stumbling within it. Let's look at verses 19 through 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So Jesus, he shares These are amazing verses. And many times I think we read these verses and we kind of just glance over them. We don't recognize how amazing and how impactful these verses are. Jesus is sharing the power in coming together as his church to pray. Jesus said, if you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done. Prayer is something that is so put on the back burner in the church today. But oh, the power when God's church comes together and prays. So many Christians today are so fed up with the evil and the darkness in this world that they refuse to actually come together and pray. So many Christians want to see revival, but they don't want to pray. They don't want to come together as God's church. They don't want to fellowship. If you look and study history, every revival started how? By prayer. If you study every revival in history, they were sustained by prayer. Why? Because it's believers coming together, asking and agreeing that this is what they want God to do. They recognize the power in it. Have we lost sight of that? So many times we share, oh, this world is so dark and so evil. Well, let's start praying. Because God is the only one who can change hearts. First John 5:14 says this, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. Well, we just read that it's God's will that all come to salvation. So I think it's safe to say that if we all pray for salvation to come to this city, God is going to work. But we need to come together and pray. We need to pray. And so Jesus is showing the power when his church comes together corporately worshipping him in fellowship. Fellowship is another thing that's often put on the back burner, and there's many unhealthy Christians because of a lack of fellowship. God calls us to be in corporate worship with one another. Why? Because fellowship encourages accountability, encouragement. We challenge one another. A Christian without fellowship is an unhealthy Christian. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhort one another... And so much the more as you see the day approaching. It was not a coincidence that Satan wanted every church to close for two years. That's not a coincidence. Satan doesn't want the church open. Satan doesn't want the church meeting. Satan doesn't want believers coming together because there's power in it. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, you need to reconcile, you need to love, you need to serve one another, and you need to come together, pray, and worship Knowing, once again, the God that we serve. And notice the emphasis. It's not on numbers or space. Jesus said, if just two of you meet together, I'm there in the midst. Why? Because they're meeting in his name. The emphasis isn't on numbers. It's not on buildings. The emphasis is on who they're meeting for in the name of Jesus. There's many large churches today who don't meet in the name of Jesus. Jesus is not interested in the quantity as much as he is in the quality once again as we've been seeing with the heart of Jesus. The emphasis must be always in the church to glorify Jesus and to honor and revere his word. We're going to look at the last section here, the rest of the chapter, verses 21 through 35, and we'll wrap up with these verses. So let's see what it says. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. That as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. (laughs) Wow. You know, we read this chapter. Jesus says some serious things in this chapter, doesn't he? Right? First, he said, yeah, if you cause one of these little ones stumble, it's better if you were thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. Oh, if these things cause you to sin, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Oh, you're not going to forgive? My Heavenly Father will do to you if you don't forgive. Once again, I think it's safe to say these things are very serious to Jesus and they should warrant our full attention to what Jesus is teaching. Because Jesus isn't just merely teaching the disciples. He's rebuking them because their heart was a heart of pride and a heart of competing with one another and putting each other down instead of conducting themselves the way that they were called to. So Peter, in verse 21, comes to Jesus and said, Lord, how, how often shall I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. I don't know what goes through Peter's head. You know, maybe one day in eternity he can explain why he said some of the things that he said. I think Peter was trying to impress Jesus with this question. And according to history, the Jewish rabbis, they taught that a person is only to be forgiven up to three times. And if you forgive them up to three times, they shouldn't be forgiven anymore. And so Peter's like, well, I'm going to double what they said and add one. I don't know what his thought process was. But he said, Lord, shall I forgive him seven times? He's probably trying to appear righteous. I'm not sure what was going through his head. But look at Jesus' response. He said, no, you're to forgive someone 70 times seven. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Does Jesus mean that we forgive people 490 times and the 491st time we don't have to forgive them? And maybe there is someone in your life, I'm sure there is, who you've had to forgive 490 plus times. Does that mean that you shouldn't forgive them anymore? No. Jesus is stating that the amount of forgiveness that we must show must be without record. You don't forgive someone and then go put a tally on your wall and say, okay, that's... That's 483. A few more to go. No, Jesus is saying it's not about how many times you forgive. You're just called to forgive without number, without record. We forgive because we love, right? And and, and the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. And this is the forgiveness and the love that we're called to show to one another. What does it mean to truly forgive someone? To forgive it means that you don't remember the wrong that was done to you anymore. It means you treat the offender as though they never offended you. How often do we partially forgive someone? Oh, yeah, I forgive you. Right? And then you see him again and you're like, great, they're here. Right? Partial forgiveness instead of forgiveness from our heart. The forgiveness from our heart is the forgiveness that Jesus is commanding us to give without number. Forgiveness is yet another sign of a surrendered heart. And you might think, why should we forgive people without number? Why should we keep forgiving the same people who keep wronging us? Because that's what Jesus is still doing for you and still doing for me. I'll tell you what, if Jesus was only going to forgive me 490 times, I'd have been dead years ago. But praise God, the forgiveness and mercy and grace He shows me is without end because we serve such a great God. And Jesus taught in John 13:15 through 16. He said, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Guess what? In those verses, we're the slaves that he's referring to. And we're the messengers that he's referring to. We're not above our teacher. We're not above our Lord Jesus. We're not above him. And so if Jesus has done these things for us, we too are called to do it because this is the mercy that he's shown us. And the forgiveness that Jesus gives us, it's complete forgiveness. It's not partial. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, he's cast our sins. That's an infinite distance that never meets up again. The Bible says that he's forgotten our sins. He remembers them no more. The Bible tells us that God sees us like he sees his only son. Blameless. Is this the forgiveness that we show? And if you're here today and you're unsaved, there is forgiveness that can be found, but only through the complete work of Jesus on the cross. And to find this forgiveness, you don't have to do anything except cry out to him. But Jesus just taught about when someone offends you, you need to talk to that person. And now he's saying, that's you're not done yet. You don't just meet with them and settle this. Now you need to forgive them. And you need to truly forgive them. And watch this. Jesus is not merely just calling us to forgive the people that we love. He's calling us to forgive all people. Yes, even our enemies. And I know this is very difficult, especially for our family in Myanmar right now. Right? What does the Bible command us when it comes to these wicked people doing these wicked things? We need to forgive them. It's not fair, but we need to forgive them. Because Jesus has forgiven us. And He loves us. So in verses 23 through 35, Jesus shares a parable to help convey His point. And remember, a parable is a fictional story that is given to convey a real truth. And Jesus, in this story, has a king and a servant who owed the king a lot, right? If you look, it said that he, he owed a, a lot here, which in modern terms would have been close to a billion U.S. dollars. It could have been several million to close to a billion. And the point that Jesus was making was that this servant owed an unpayable debt. This servant owed something that he could never pay off. And yet the king, it says, was moved with compassion and had favor and forgave him the debt. Now, this is a clear picture of, of Jesus for us. Right, The unpayable debt that we had that we couldn't pay off is sin. Sin's an expensive debt that we can never pay on our own. The only way we could pay for that is an eternity in hell separated from Christ forever. And so Jesus said, okay, I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to pay that sin debt for you. I'm going to forgive it all. Past, present, and future. I'm going to forgive all the sins that you've committed before you accept me, the sins you commit while you're accepting me, the sins you're yet to commit. I'm going to forgive them all. But then this servant goes out and he finds his fellow servant. And this fellow servant owed him a hundred denarii, which would have been a few thousand. It's still still debt, but it's nothing compared to what he owed. And the point that Jesus is making is no matter who wrongs us and how they wrong us, it never compares to what we did to God. We were his enemies. And yet he forgave us all. And yet this servant, what did he do? He treated his fellow servant with contempt. He took him by the throat. He said, no, you're going to pay me everything. I'm not going to forgive your debt. And when the king heard this, what did he do? He grabbed the servant. He rebuked him, gave him to the torturers and said, you're going to pay all that you're due. And in verse 35, Jesus says, so my heavenly father also will do to each of you from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This punishment is given to us in Matthew 6, 15. And Jesus said that if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. Was Jesus being metaphorical here? No. Jesus was being very literal. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. That's the standard that Jesus has set for us. In a heart that's truly surrendered to Jesus, we'll forgive. Unforgiveness is a prison that will keep you bound. It's a prison that will torture you. It's a prison that will keep producing more sin in your heart. And that's why, if you have something against a brother or sister, especially in the church, you need to work it out with them. You need to deal with it. Because if you don't, it's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to grow and become far worse. And the great news is, with the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, we can forgive all people. We can forgive even the most wicked and evil people because that's what Christ did for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is the standard. So there's a lot of verses here. We could have spent a lot more. We could have spent weeks on these verses. But Jesus, He taught all of this in Matthew 18 to rebuke and to teach the disciples because the disciples, all this started because they came to Jesus and said, Lord, who's going to be the greatest? I want to be the greatest. And Jesus said, no. You need to surrender your pride. And I'll wrap up with this. Maybe in here, what Jesus was rebuking and telling His disciples is a message that you need to hear from Jesus. You need to humble yourself and lay down your pride. A heart that's truly surrendered to Jesus means surrendering your rights, surrendering what you feel entitled to, putting others first, becoming the least of these as Jesus did. He said, I've come to serve, not to be served. Humbling yourself, serving others, bearing each other's burdens. Keeping yourself from sin. Understanding the battle that you're in. And taking the precautions against the sin that so easily ensnares us. Loving others. Forgiving others. This is the standard that Jesus has set for us. And I want you to notice once more, and this is my last thought here and then we'll pray. I want you to notice Jesus' language in this chapter. Jesus wasn't joking with the disciples. He wasn't being playful with them here. He spoke in a very direct way because this is how important it is to Jesus' heart. And I know all his commands are serious and important. I'm not downplaying that. But Jesus, he spoke with some heavy language here because he takes this very seriously. And we as the church, we must be taking this very seriously. Humbling ourselves, keeping ourselves from sin, serving others, loving others, forgiving others, being in fellowship, being in prayer, not forsaking the gathering together of one another. And once again, maybe you've been straying from these things. I know I did many times this week. The great news is we serve a God of restoration who wants to forgive and restore. And though Jesus, he has severe punishment for these things, this is unrepented, right? If we ask Jesus to forgive us, he will forgive us. And the forgiveness that he offers is, it's complete forgiveness. And so if you've been straying, you reconcile yourself to God. You, you need to cry out for forgiveness. And praise God that He hears our cries and He offers us forgiveness. So let's pray, and then we'll continue in our worship.